Well, good morning. Some of you are looking at me like, um, I know who the guest speaker is today, and she does not look like her. <laughs> How many of you are excited about this morning? I am too. Well, my name is Lisa Surratt, and um, I have the privilege, along with my husband, Josh Surratt, to lead here at Seacoast. And if you're joining us from an off-site campus, or maybe you're online, we're so glad that you're here. I uh, just want to give a special shout out to James Island. Uh, those of you who are joining us from James Island, thank you for being a part of Seacoast. We just love you. Joey and, and Priscilla are doing such a great job, and uh, we're, we're so excited to have you. So this morning, we got some James Islanders, I guess. Um, this morning, I have uh, the honor and privilege to introduce uh, a dear friend of mine. Uh, how many of you have ever had a, a friend that just wrecked your life in all the right ways? You ever had one of those? Well, Christine Kane is definitely that friend to me. We, we met about 10 years ago, and I had the opportunity to join her uh, in the fight of human trafficking with A21 here on the East Coast. And it's since moved to Charlotte and is just continuing to make a ripple effect across the nation. And we've just seen God just do incredible things. Um, and, you know, she, uh, she and her husband, Nick, started A21, and, and now they have 15 offices in 13 countries and are rescuing girls uh, and, and men as well. Um, it's incredible, absolutely incredible. And she really doesn't need an, an introduction. Uh, so many of you know who she is and, and have been impacted by her ministry. But um, she now has a, a TV show on uh, Hillsong Channel and TBN. She's written countless books. Uh, her newest one, Unexpected, is coming out soon. But we are blessed enough that we have uh, some of her books um, this morning, if we haven't sold out already. And, um, but we are just honored. We love uh, Nick and Christine Kane. They are truly family to Seacoast. So would you please stand to your feet and give a warm Seacoast welcome to Christine Kane. Hey, church. How y'all doing? I am so glad to be home. You could be seated and it's so good to be here. And honestly, when I come to Seacoast, you just keep growing. I know there's 14 different campuses kind of watching. You're a little bit like God, just omnipresent. So wherever you are watching me now and online, I am so glad you've joined us. You are here as much as we're all here. So I love it. And I love Lisa with a passion and Pastor Josh and Greg and Debbie, Nick and I, I am here with the single most ravishing piece of masculine. Pastor Greg thought I was about talking about him. Um, so yeah, that's what I thought you, you could see. He was looking for that moment. Um, and Nick's on the front row here. Uh, he is the single most ravishing piece of masculine flesh on planet Earth. And so a couple of Fridays ago, we celebrated 22 years of marriage, which is awesome. And um, we have two daughters, Catherine Bobby who's 16, and Sophia Joyce, who's 12. The first, there, 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 she's like a bit older, there you go. And um, you know, I'm into arranged marriages because I'm Greek, and um, I want them to marry a very wealthy Christian man, so we'll take, anyway, I won't go there, right? You can tell my kids are not with me because my daughters would be dying right now if um, they were in the room. So. I love being at home. I feel very much at home because, of course, our East Coast office uh, for A21 started 
uh, here with Lisa, who, uh, you know, before we talked, had no intention of um, changing her whole life. But, you know, God has that. God and Christine, I'm, I'm like, when she was saying about someone wrecks your life in all the right ways, I'm thinking that's my spiritual gift. I don't know if it's in the spiritual gifts in Corinthians or Romans, but it is my spiritual gift. It's an additional one. Um, but who would have known? Only God uh, of what would come out of that. And here we are celebrating our 10th year anniversary um, as A21. And I say this because your church has been so significant in terms of partnering with us um, in order to just see multiplied hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of uh, people rescued. And just, you know, a couple of days ago in Thailand, uh, which you've got to understand how historic this is, because in some of these places, when we went, human trafficking, slavery was not even a crime. So we had to change laws. And um, three traffickers uh, in Thailand that trafficked, you know, kids between four and 12 um, were put away for between 167 and 320 years, which is just so... So significant in, uh, in the midst of all of that. So I love it when justice prevails. And I went over yesterday to your new building. And, you know, because I'm a preacher chick and an evangelist, I, I went and stood on the stage. And I'm looking at this one today going, oh, thank God for our new one. You should see it because the altar's so much bigger. And I did my in the spirit altar calls where you should have seen people get saved and delivered and healed. It was so, you know, when you're giving, you are not giving to bricks and mortar, although it's going to be a very beautiful building. I mean, when I looked at what they're doing, I thought you can have like ugly buildings or really beautiful buildings. So why not have beautiful? And so I'm looking at your building and thinking, what a test. It makes the devil very nervous when you put a stake in the ground and say, we are building a legacy for the generations to come. So I think it's so exciting. And I know we've got an offering in a couple of weeks, so come prepared because we're not giving to bricks and mortar. We are giving to altars being filled with people's marriages being restored and people's bodies being healed and souls being saved. That's what we're giving to, to the generations that are to come. So I'm excited to come back next year. I'm inviting myself in case you didn't know. And, um, and, and just seeing that building packed to capacity with all the nice problems we have when we have a Holy Ghost uh, traffic jam. And um, that's what we really like. I better get into the word because we've got another service and it, we're grateful that I'm both Greek and a woman. So I speak hard, fast and continuously. You will not go to sleep on any of the campuses this morning or online, you will not go to sleep. Um, we're gonna jump in the Bible. Turn with me to the book of Genesis, and I figured if I read really fast, we will get to Revelation by the end of the day. Don't, don't pat, you're so happy, like awesome. Whenever a preacher says Genesis, you're like, really? Okay, so Genesis chapter two, verse 25, the scripture says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew they were naked. 
And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman. <laughs> you all know some things never change, right? Right there. <laughs> just saying. And the woman whom you gave to be with me, like, do you like it? He doesn't just blame the chick, he blames God too. The woman who you gave to be with me. That's another sermon. Pastor Josh will preach that next week. I'll just continue with the text right here. <laughs> I guess. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And hence here in Genesis, we see the beginning of the victim culture. You don't need a hashtag and to go on Twitter, right there in the Garden of Eden. We see it wasn't my fault, it was his hashtag. It's your fault, God. But anyway, so Genesis chapter two, verse 25, I began this morning's reading there because it's sometimes a, a verse that we overlook as we step into Genesis chapter three, the fall of humanity, and so many of us are familiar with that text. But Genesis chapter two, verse 25, just before we step into the fall of humanity, God wants us to know something very important. God says to us, Adam and Eve were naked and they knew no shame, depending on what version you will read, perhaps, and they were unashamed. It's interesting to me that out of every human emotion that you could feel, God wanted us to know that there is one particular emotion, there is one particular feeling, there's one particular condition that I created Adam and Eve to not know what it felt like. I created them to not know what shame felt like. I want you all to know that Adam and Eve were naked and knew no shame. So if I was the enemy and I wanted to take out the only thing that's created in the image of God, which is humanity, human beings created in the image of God, if I wanted to take them out, if I wanted to stop them from being fruitful or mightily effective or fulfill their potential, then I would want to put on them the one thing that they were never created to know what it felt like, and that would be shame. Do you wonder why in 2018, the New York Times ran a six-page article calling us the shaming culture? And that's because of so much of what we see on the internet, on social media. I mean, I mean, you probably have never done it, but you know, just for everybody else, the way they just call people out on social, and especially the last couple of years in this nation has been crazy. The way people are shaming people publicly. I mean, of course, colleges, since they've started, have always had the walk of shame, not here in Charleston, but every other college in the world. You know, they have a, a walk of shame. So many of us have grown up in households where parents have said, shame on you. You should be ashamed of yourself. Perhaps even as I'm speaking this morning, you're thinking, I just said that to my kid this morning. But there's a, a sense of putting shame on us. Now, I personally never knew a time in my life where I did not know shame. And a lot of us feel the same way. Whether it was shame from my ethnic background, I grew up as the daughter of Greek immigrants. Before my big fat Greek wedding, when it was not cool to be Greek in Australia, it was really not cool. Very marginalized because of my ethnicity. You know, and um, kids would just mock and ridicule me 
because of the way I taught. I didn't speak English until I was five. And just because I looked different and I talked different. And I remember being shamed on the first day at school when my mother packed me a feta cheese and olive sandwich with garlic, which you pay a lot of money for now. But back then, <laughs> I remember going to school and Wayne and Robert, who ate Vegemite sandwiches, just ridiculed me. I felt such shame that every day after that, when my mum packed my lunch, I would throw it out on the way to school. We've all got our school story where there is something that shamed us. Mrs. Black in kindergarten, in third grade, at, in 1973, that's how old I am. I was born before the dinosaurs. And so she wrote, Christine Karyophilus, because that was my name. Christine Karyophilus has to learn that she can't always be the leader. And you know, the devil will always try to attack you in the area and shame you in the area that God wants to use you somewhere in your future. Now, she didn't know that I was being sexually abused. She didn't know that I had so many issues of abandonment and rejection and unforgiveness and bitterness and hurt. And so school was my escape. School was the place that I went to kind of get involved in everything and forget about the pain that I was in. But she shamed me because I could consciously remember walking home reading that report card. And then it must have worked because in the end of year report she wrote, Christine Karyophilus has settled down very well now because I made a decision that day I will never put my hand up again and volunteer for anything. It's amazing at what point you get stunted in life. I remember in Bible school, the dean of our college who didn't like chicks talking after I did my first chapel and God really moved. But he got up after that and he said, Christine Karyophilus, after that pathetic effort, nobody will ever have you preach anywhere. You will never be invited. He literally said the words, you will never be invited anywhere. Well, 30 years after Bible college, I'm here and he's dead. But anyway, that's just, a, that's a, that's just an aside. Just say, you can tell I'm home. This is dangerous. Lucky I'm getting on a plane later. I'm getting very relaxed with the Sunday morning crowd. But the enemy will always try to shame you in the area that God wants to use you somewhere in your future. So whether it's because of your gender or ethnicity, growing up immigrant, I grew up in the poorest zip code in my state. I was sexually abused for 12 years. I found out at 33 that I was adopted. I had no idea. My brother got a letter from the government. He found out he was adopted and when he went to confront my mother in that moment, um, my mum said to me, Christine, since we're telling the truth today, do you want to know the whole truth? And so in that sense, at 33 years old, I found out that I wasn't who I thought I was. I found out that I was adopted. So there was a whole brokenness. I tell everyone everywhere, I fit every government funding category in Australia. I'm a marginalised, oppressed, dispossessed, poor, ethnic, minority, abused, adopted chick. I could make a fortune on government funding. <laughs> Because they fund people like me and they give me a label and they say, victim, we will pay you every week and remind you of your victim status. But church, I read the book and my Bible says that he's redeemed my life from the pit that I am no longer a victim, but we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus who strengthened us, more than. And now God's using all the things that the enemy meant for evil in my life 
to bring redemption and hope to others. It would be just like God to take an unnamed, unwanted, abused, adopted chick from the back of Sydney, Australia, and not only rescue me, but now use me to turn around and open the prison doors for those that are still bound and still in captivity. That's what more than a conqueror is. It's not that I just get by and just got through, but now we can open up the prison doors for others. Every time we put a trafficker in jail, every time we rescue a child, I think, devil, you can put that in your pipe and smoke it. I feel like Joseph in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, who turned around to his brothers and he said, you meant this for evil against me, but God meant it for this very purpose, to save many people alive. The world will try to put shame on you, cripple you, paralyze you. The parent that said, I wish you were never born. The teacher that said, you're dumb, you're stupid, you'll never amount to anything. The people that will use culture or tradition to hold you back from the fullness of what God has for your life. Ever since the garden, the enemy has wanted to heap shame on us, to cripple us, to paralyze us, to immobilize us, ultimately to render us ineffective because it is to our Father's great glory that we bear much fruit. So if he can quench our fruit-bearing potential, that's what he wants to do. And that's why shame is such a destroyer. And so many of us don't know the difference between guilt and shame. So many of us just think there's something wrong with us. I thought that my whole life. Because you see, when you start being abused, you think what's happening to you is wrong. But when it keeps happening and nobody stops it, you begin to believe the lie that there's something wrong with you. That's why it's happening. And I remember my default to this day, if I don't keep renewing my mind, is there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with me. And many of us, that's what we think. And that's very different to guilt, which means I did something wrong. If you don't know the difference between your who and your do, you will always run from God rather than to God. Now, we all do stuff wrong. For some of us, a little bit of guilt would be actually good if you had some. It would actually help. And so it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. But if you think you've got nothing to repent from, that's a problem. And so the issue is that guilt means I did something wrong. And you run into the arms of a loving heavenly father who washes all our guilt away. But shame is this deep-rooted feeling. There's something wrong with me. Some of you are climbing that corporate ladder and forsaking your family because deep down you're trying to prove something to a father that's not even alive anymore. You're trying to prove something to someone that said to you, you never will, you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, you're not talented enough. And so many of us, that's what we spend our life doing. If I was just a little bit smarter, if I was just a bit thinner, if I was just a bit richer, if I was just something errer than I am. So we spend all our life trying to err. And then the problem is once we're richer, smarter, fitter, thinner, then we discover we're not the richest, the smartest, the thinnest. So we spend our life on earth never doing what God's called us to do because we're trying to err or est. God says, I created you in my image to be who I called you to be. And the enemy tries to shame us into being so much less than what God called us to do. So let's continue with the text. The enemy came into the garden and he said to the woman, the Bible says he's more crafty than any other animal. That's because he understood the power of words to either take you to your destiny or keep you from your destiny. Our words are very important. The words we listen to and the words we articulate. And so the enemy comes in and he asks this question. 
which is the question that is on the table for our generation and has been for every generation since the garden. The first question in scripture, the question that the devil continues to ask to this day, he comes into the garden and he asks this question, did God really say? And why is that an important question? Because if you do not know what God really said, you will believe what the enemy said. You will believe what that teacher said. You will believe what that parent said. You will believe what that friend said. You'll believe what that ex-lover or that ex-spouse said that told you you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, you're not talented, no one will ever love you. You won't ever be able to achieve this. You won't ever be able to do this. If you don't know what God says about you, you will believe the lies of the enemy. You will believe the media. You will believe the fear and the terror that is out there. You have got to know what God says about you. And what is happening to a whole generation is they're being asked the question, did God really say? Did God really say that marriage is between one man and one woman? Did God really say you shouldn't have sex before marriage? Did God really say scripture is inerrant? Did God really say there's a literal hell? Did God really say that Jesus is the only way to God? Every generation will have to answer the question, did God really say, and what you believe about what God really said will determine whether you fulfill your destiny or not. Now, let me give you a case in point, my own life. If I didn't know what God said about me, I would have believed the lies that the enemy tried to feed me through a lot of institutions that I value and I work with to this day. But most of us limit our potential based on our reasoning, our logic, the education department, the government, the medical profession, and I love them all, I work with them all. But they do not define, nor are they the final authority on what happens in my life. God's word is the final authority of what happens in my life. Now let me show you how that's best exemplified. When I found out I was adopted, I received a, a government document, so obviously this is my birth certificate. You know how weird it is at 33 to get a birth certificate when you thought you had one? And I'm, I'm watching so many of your faces, especially the women, as soon as you saw that word unnamed. Because it's like, it's a huge thing. Number 2508 of 1966, I just visibly saw so many of your faces go, wow. And it was that shocking to me. When I received that and the enemy, it was like a dart in my heart. Getting this document was actually more painful than finding out I was adopted. Because the tape recorder starts, we've all got a tape recorder. See, Christine? Your mother didn't even want you. She didn't even give you a name. No wonder you were abused for 12 years. You're just a number anyway. That's why to me, when I talk about the victims of human trafficking, to many people, they just sound like statistics. But numbers are numbing. Numbers are dehumanizing. It is so easy to ignore suffering when it's nameless and faceless. But when you, if I just said to you 2508 of 1966, you would just go, yeah, whatever. But the minute I tell you that's Christine Kane, it changes everything. No one is a number in the economy of God. And so I received this unnamed. Now, that could have sent me in a tailspin. There would be no Propel Women. There would be no A21. I wouldn't be married. I wouldn't be the mother that I am today by the grace of God because I would have so believed the lies of the enemy and all the years of abuse and rejection and abandonment, and it would have so destroyed me internally. I would have Turned out most young women with my background don't end up doing what I'm doing. They end up either drug dependent or alcohol dependent or maybe two or three different kids to two or three different fathers or confused about their gender identity like I was or just broken or hurt. That's normal 
for what would happen to someone with my kind of background. But here's the power of what I'm talking to you about today. And the power of this question that the enemy asks each of one of us, did God really say? Because see, that's what the Department of Community Services said over my life. Unnamed, number 2508. Then I received a document from the Royal Hospital for Women, and this is the social worker report that was written two weeks before I was born about my biological mother. And it says, she does not seem to be too emotionally involved with the child. She seems to wanna get it all over and done with and get back to work as soon as possible. And the letter goes on. So essentially this document from the medical profession tells me that I'm unwanted. And so that, and because I work with the victims of human trafficking and have worked in pastoral care for 30 years, the damage that can be done to a child when you find out that your parents didn't want you, that you were an accident or a mistake, I don't know if I was the result of a rape, I don't know if I was the result of a one night stand, the damage that can be done for your whole life when you believe the facts. And then on the 28th of March, 1993, and I'll cut a long story short, I, I went in for an interview with the most prestigious social work school in Australia because we were running a community-based youth center, advising government. We were faith-based and they loved our outcomes, they just didn't love our methodology. And so what happened was they called me in because their students wanted to do a placement at my youth center and essentially then after I had to meet the whole faculty, um, they sent me this letter that basically said to me that if I was to remain in youth services, I would need to take several years out to get basic qualifications. Now, by the grace of God, today I run probably the largest anti-trafficking organization specifically in the world, and I've been involved in youth ministry since the 28th of March, 1993, in 49 countries, spoken face-to-face -face because I've done a lot of crusades with Joyce Meyer to millions of people, but this is what the experts said about me. On the 28th of March, 1993, they said to me that I was unqualified. And so this is what so many of us limit our lives by. So I have three documents up here that are the facts that so many of us base our life on. So there it is. And of course, if the government says it, we know it's true. So that says that I'm unnamed. The medical profession, I don't know, maybe you have a report that says incurable, terminal, there's no hope. You're always gonna have to live with this. Well, there's the medical report that says unwanted. And over here, there is a document from the education department that says that I am unqualified. Now, if I didn't know what God really said, I would have allowed these facts to limit my life and to limit my potential. I would have put greater faith in the facts than the truth. And I'm not denying those facts. I'm not some happy, clappy, charismatic that just lives in another planet and doesn't live in reality. I see the facts. I see the black and white ink on paper as readily as every single one of you. But here is the deal. I found myself another black and white ink on paper that is a little bit more powerful than the facts. And although that document says that I am unnamed, Isaiah 49 verse one says, from the womb of your mother, I have named your name. Although that document says that I'm unwanted, Psalm 139 says, sweetheart, before you ever got in that womb, I wanted you, I knew you, I knitted you together. And that document says that I'm unqualified, but my Bible says that he whom he calls, he qualifies. You've got to build your life on the truth of the Word of God and not the facts of your circumstances. For every single one of us at every phase of life, and particularly for this generation in North America right now, we have got to settle the question did God really say? 
destinies are at stake. Fruitfulness is at stake. The gospel is at stake. Did God really say? Well, Eve turns around and she says, well, God did say. And she actually quoted what God said. We shouldn't eat of that tree or we're going to die. So you can be in church every Sunday. You can have done 155 Bethmore Bible studies and know how to memorize entire scripture. You can quote the Bible. You can come to church. But if you don't actually do what it says, then your life is not going to flourish. She quoted the word back to the enemy. God did actually say. God did say I should keep myself morally pure. God did say I shouldn't lie or cheat or steal or gossip or slander. Maybe I should think about what I'm putting out there on social media. Maybe I should think about the conversations that I'm having. God did say. But the enemy, same lie as always. He turns around, he goes, you will not surely die. You can do anything you want contrary to the word of God and you will not surely die. Sleep with who you want, marry who you want, do whatever you want, lie on your taxes, cheat, steal. You, you won't die. I mean, I know you went to the singles group for two weeks in a row and look at God, he's so bad, he didn't even give you a spouse. So go to the nightclub and find your own. You will not surely die. Your boss isn't gonna know if you just take a little bit. You will not surely die. You can log onto the computer, no one knows what you're looking at. You will not surely die. Oh, he's had the same lie from the beginning of time and he's screaming it to our generation. Do what you wanna do. I mean, we cloud it in nice language. You do you, boo. Sweetheart, possibly the last thing you should do is you boo. <laughs> Some of these cute little sayings, I'm going, dangerous. You will not surely die. Oh, yes, you will. Oh, yes, you will. You do Jesus, boo. That is much more helpful. <laughs> you do Jesus. And so the Bible says they ate of the fruit like so many of us do. And right when we do, psh, guilt and shame hit. And you get a choice whether you're gonna respond in guilt or shame. Guilt is okay in a healthy way. Oh, I did something wrong. And you can come to the presence of a loving, merciful God. The Bible says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's nothing that you've done that can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. There is nothing that you've done that God cannot and will not and has not forgiven. Shame though says I am wrong. And it causes us instead of running to God, it causes us to run from God. So many of us are sitting in church watching online in one of our campuses today and your body's here but your whole spiritual posture is actually out of the presence of God because you feel so ashamed about something that you've done or something that's been done to you. And you might've even been coming to church for years, but your spiritual posture has not lent into the presence of God because of the shame that you carry. 
And I've come here to Seacoast this weekend and the devil has declared shame on you and I'm declaring shame off you in Jesus' name. We're gonna see people set free across our church today because you cannot be fruitful if you are drowning in shame. And so God comes into the garden and the band can come up. God comes into the garden. Can you imagine? It is a normal time since it's the cool of the day. He must like that time of the day. He comes in and to me asks one of the saddest questions in scripture. He asks, where are you? Now, here is the deal. When God asks, where are you? It's not because he doesn't know. He, he's omniscient. It's okay. It's not like, whoa, I got no idea. Did you see Peter? Where did they go? He's not, he doesn't, it's not that he doesn't know. God asks, where are you? Because he's asking you to locate, where are you? Where are you? In a sense, when we gather every week, that's why church and community is so important because it's a time God comes in. Where are you? Where is the you that I created? Where are you? Where did you go? And Adam, first dialogue between mankind created in the image of God and God, first recorded words in holy writ. I was naked and afraid and so I hid. Fear, shame, hiding. First conversation between God and man. And that dictates so many of our conversations with God. Fear, shame, and hiding. I was naked and afraid and so I hid. I ran from the presence of God rather to the presence of God. I feel so bad about what I did. I feel so ashamed of what I did. So instead of coming into his mercy and his grace and his cleansing love, I run from him and I try to medicate it and I try to numb it or I try to earn more money or drug it or jump from bed to bed or do something to stop feeling. So many of us, that's the cycle we're trapped in. And I can imagine God, to me the saddest, this is the saddest question. And I wonder whether God had a tear in his, running down his face, I don't know. It's not there in the text, but I wonder. When God asked him, who told you? Who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you were dumb? Who told you that there will always be addiction in your family? Who told you there'll always be divorce in your family? Who told you there'll always be poverty in your family? Who told you that you're stupid? Who told you that you can't? Who told you? Who told you? That's why did God really say is such an important question. Where are you? Where did you go? The you that God created to flourish on this earth, to be His salt and His light. Where are you? Where did you go? Who, who told you? Who told you the lie that you believe that stunted you? You know, my daughter, Catherine, ever since she was born, both my kids, Catherine and Sophie Joyce, since they were born, I've always, almost daily spoken over them. Catherine, Bobby, you are the head and not the tail. You're above only and not beneath. You're a leader and not a follower. You're a woman of God. You're a woman of prayer. You're a Holy Ghost terrorist. You love the house of God. And I've always told her, you are gonna grow up and marry a very, very, very wealthy Christian man. I've told her, 
Because, you know, when you're popping out kids at 40, you're going to be 180 when you have grandkids, so you need a rich son-in-law to look after you. And her daddy has always said to her, always, he speaks over her, prays over them every night and says to her, Catherine Bobby, you are strong. You're courageous. You're intelligent. You could do anything God's called you to do. You could be anything God's called you to be. You are beautiful. And she's a stunner. She really is outside and in. But he always says, you're beautiful at the end. So she does not get her esteem from her external sense. But that's so she knows at a core that she's strong and courageous and beautiful and intelligent. And um, she went to kindergarten. How many know when you go to kindergarten, you don't kind of get that affirmation, you know, every day from everyone. And so I went to pick her up from school and the teachers said this to me. I went to pick her up and the teacher said, Chris, you should have seen what happened today. At lunchtime, there was like a little bit of a, a fight because a little boy wanted Catherine's teddy bear. So he went up to her at lunchtime. He ripped the teddy bear out of her hands and he said, Catherine, Bobby, you are dumb and you are ugly. And I'm thinking, like you, how does my daughter even know what that means? And the teacher said this to me. She said, Christine, you should have seen your daughter. She put her shoulders back. She eyeballed this kid. And I seriously, I really did. I thought the teacher was gonna say, and she king hit him. I'm like, yes, yes. Extra Christmas presents. Do not write me letters about physical violence. I'm like, she goes to, anyway, it's okay. And so the teacher said to me, no, you know, I was like excited, but she goes, no, no. Christine, she put her shoulders back. She looked him in the eye and she said to him, no, I'm not. I'm not dumb and I'm not ugly. My daddy says that I am intelligent and I am beautiful. And why am I telling you that this morning, Seacoast? Because when the enemy comes like he does, and he tells you that you're not good enough, that you're not smart enough, and he tries to heap shame on you, you've got to learn to turn around and say, no, not today, devil. My daddy says, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. My daddy says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. 